Welcome to the Rev Thinking Podcast. I'm Tim Thompson, founder and chief revolution thinker at RevThink. This holiday season, we at RevThink are taking a turn from our regular Rev Thinking programming to bring you a series of six episodes from our podcast called The Fabulist. The Fabulous comes from the intriguing mind of my friend and fellow Rev Thinker, Joel Pilger, who wore the title of Global Consultant to the Fullest and embarked on a journey to uncover the stories of some of the world's most interesting studios and production companies. His interviews, deeply insightful and distinct, are a capsule collection of legacy conversations from some of the brightest creative slash business minds in our industry. As 2023 draws to a close, we're excited to share these conversations with you. Each day, for these last six days of the year, we'll unwrap one of these remarkable discussions, offering both a retrospective and a glimpse into what 2024 might hold. We hope you enjoy these narratives as much as we do, and find your own inspiration and reflection as we look forward to a new season of thriving in business, life, and career. Happy holidays, and here's to a new season of creating your future. That's great. Uh, Aaron Sarofsky has designed title sequences for four Marvel films, including Captain America, The Winter Soldier. There's a lot going on there. Even. And the beautifully intricate Doctor Strange. What do you want them to take away from your title sequence? Well, I want them to wait till the very end of the scroll and look for her name. <laughs> <laughs> If I asked you, what's it like being a creative business owner? Would you be real? Share your insecurities? Set aside your celebrated status? You might give me the surface answers. Running a business is a huge burden. It's harder than you think. No one understands me. The stuff that we've heard before. In this episode, my guest, Aaron Sarofsky, effortlessly goes beyond those cliches to something deeper, something more honest and even simple, which is surprising because, well, let's just consider Aaron's bio. Aaron is the internationally heralded creative visionary, regularly chosen by brand and entertainment titans to lead their most artful storytelling projects. That's a big statement. How does one back that up? <laughs> well, like this. In 2009, Erin launched Sarovsky in Chicago. Under her leadership, the studio is well known for creating main title sequences for blockbuster movies and television series, including Peacemaker, We Crashed, The Staircase, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2, the Suicide Squad, Doctor Strange, Animal Kingdom, Shameless, Community, Full Frontal with Samantha B, and so on. So among creative business owners who are uncomfortable or afraid to drop the filter, Erin is a welcome surprise. She's lived all the stories that otherwise make an owner closed off or at arm's length, even glib, but not Erin. I often say, as a creative entrepreneur, I don't have the luxury of being a pessimist. And in this conversation, you'll find a similar vibe in Erin because she is one part optimist, one part realist, but maybe one part dreamer still. Because despite all the successes and all the hits that she's taken along the way, she is still going, still evolving, and still dreaming. 
I think it's remarkable to think that one day we might look back, maybe listen to this podcast episode even, as we are reflecting on the legacies of names like Saul and Elaine Bass, Ray and Charles Eames, Aaron Sarofsky. I mean, maybe in that list. I mean, how will history judge any of us? It's exciting to think that every day, history is being made by creatives like Aaron and her team right now, as well as me and you. So like she does me, I hope Aaron inspires you. Why do this thing, this studio thing that you've been doing now for how many years? Yeah, well, I'm doing it because I started doing it very naively. <laughs> right, but I mean, like, why in the first place? Even if Why in the first place? For me, it was really important to be at a design-led place where it wasn't the superstar editor. People were going to work with me because they wanted design. <laughs> you know, it wasn't an add-on or something like that. And so that's around 2000. Wait, no, what year was that? Like 2008? So when it was time after I, you know, went from Digital Kitchen to Superfat in New York, and then when I was done there, I wanted to come back. The reason I was like, okay, I'm going to do it was because I had a friend, Tracy Bernard, who was Digital Kitchen's rep in the Midwest. And she was like, oh, I can get you some more, honey. Hmm. <laughs> and I was like, really? And I knew right away, like, I was going to go from doing, like, Super Bowl commercials and Emmy-nominated title sequences to, like, nothing, like, I couldn't show their work, I would get sued, right? You can't show a studio's work. I don't think people, like, really, artists really understand this. Like, you can't show another studio's work on a studio website. So I had to, like, really grow slow. <laughs> so it started with, like, an Easy Mac commercial and tag and a Rotary International commercial, all local to Chicago, little stuff. And then, it, you know, it grew from there. Were you savvy at all in, in anything business, right? Were you a freelancer or did you have anything that would prepare you for the path of, oh, I just started not just a studio, but this thing called a business? No. Okay, no. <laughs> this is a ma this is, I got my master's degree in it on the road. So now when you started, were you pretty much an artist just doing the work or mm -hmm. did you have any sales chops? Did you, were you a good marketer? Were you a good producer? Did you have any of those skill sets? Okay, so I had clients because I was very <laughs> likable, and some say I still am. <laughs> One day we got a phone call from Apple, and they were like, would you be interested in working with us to create a piece on the iMac Pro? I was just like, I'm there. Let's go. Let's do it. But I did have clients that like even followed me from DK to Superfad. And then when I started my own thing and they became friends and they're still my friends, quite frankly. And so they were very supportive. They were supportive of, with work that I, I was always very transparent, like, no, I don't bring this here or send that to so-and-so over there. Just like a very trusted resource or, hey, yeah, I could actually take that, like, give me that piece. And I think that's the key, honestly, to everything I've built. <laughs> But I know I had no experience. I did hear you say something really interesting there that I just would love to spotlight that I heard you say that these clients who trusted me would come to me with various asks. And if I wasn't a fit, I would say, hey, thank you. But no, you should go over there. Mm -hmm. And we still do that. See, that's a big deal, right? Especially when you're small, because I'm guessing you you felt that sense of panic called, I should just take anything and everything I can get because, mm -hmm. oh my God, I'm running a business. I need the money. 
I would say the only time that happens is when there was financial trouble. And even now, like if somebody comes in, because we're in an interesting space, we do VFX, we do CG. Sometimes people call us and they're like, yeah, we got like 70 shots. And we're like, call Framestore. Like, why are you calling us? Like, I don't, we don't want to do 70 shots of anything. Yeah, you're describing an interesting, maybe characteristic, because I'm treating these people like my friends. There's a certain, I don't know, like trusting the process, right? Like if I'm, right. if I'm nice, if I'm... Like I hear the golden rule almost mm -hmm. in there that if I do right by people, sure, I might say no to this job and that money now, but it'll come back in other ways. And that's happened. We've turned down work from people that we are now like amazing clients with one of our main clients for Lionsgate. He called with like a, a quick turnaround ask and it was right as we were delivering, I think it was like Ant-Man and we were just like deep in the weeds, you know, and it was either our second or third show with Marvel, and we just did not want to fuck it up. So we were like, we got to pass because <laughs> we'd love to work with you, but like we can't focus entirely on the thing you need. So like you should take it somewhere else if you want. We can make recommendations. And he was just like, oh, my God, nobody ever passes. Who are you that you're passing? And we were like, well, we just want to do a good job. Okay, so let's talk about this thing. If we were just going to – I like to do this. I like to pretend I'm standing out on the curb – whether virtually or in real life. And I'm looking up at the at the building that is Swarovski. Yeah. If we were just going to kind of do like, give me the facts and figures to someone who doesn't know what Swarovski is. We call ourselves makers because we're making things, all kinds of things. But it's primarily like motion-based narrative-driven work, shorter format. And we're about 40, almost 40 full-time now. We work in both the commercial and entertainment industries, which is a blessing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I don't often use that word, but having two significant areas of income is really a great thing. You said 40 full-time bodies. Are there also another 10, 20, 30 freelancers that are hovering in and out at any one yeah, time? Yeah, we too? try not to go like more than 15. I, th I feel like 50 people is like... It's a, it's a big burden on... Yeah, the finances of it. And then the mix of clients you talked about, what are the things that people might say, oh, they did that, they did that, that's super cool. For example, Genius Marvel director Michael Giacchino tweeted, working with Duarte Elvas and the team at Swarovski was an amazing display of creativity and talent. People know us best for like our entertainment work, main title work. So you have our relationship with Marvel Studios. Our first film with them was Captain America Winter Soldier, Ant-Man, Doctor Strange. We did all the Guardians of the Galaxies, including this Christmas special that just came out. We just did Werewolf by Night, which was like a triumph of a piece, a really beautiful piece. And working with the director, Michael, who's also a composer, was just like a really, really special process. We also did Avengers, Captain America Civil War. And um, actually how I got into Marvel was through the Russo brothers. I go, I met them on Community. And I've been working with them now as part of Agbo. So we did so many things. We did The Gray Man. We're in the middle of Citadel with them right now. Lots of just people on the entertainment side. With James Gunn, we're kind of in his toolbox now, too, of his resources. So we went over with him to WB. We did The Peacemaker main title. And we did Suicide Squad. <laughs> I mean, I'm naming, like, Billions and billions and billions of dollars in revenue. I'd like right. to say it was all because of us, but we're just a part of the team. And, you know, it really does feel that way. It feels like 
catching up with old friends every project. You certainly have made lifelong friends in this industry. I love this quote you got recently from the Russos when you wrapped The Gray Man. And I know it's very meaningful and personal to you. It reads, Aaron Zorowski is an esteemed collaborator of the highest standard. We've partnered with her on many projects throughout the course of our career, and she consistently delivers incredibly inspired and elevated creative. We are thrilled and honored to have her work showcased in our film, The Gray Man, Joe and Anthony Russo. I can hear someone who's listening to this right now, and they're saying, wait, you're based in LA, right? No. <laughs> when I think of the personality of your company, it's you and your entire team, but is Chicago even like a person or a personality of the company? I mean, maybe it is. It's so funny when Marvel talks about us, they say, get Chicago on the phone, you know? So it's fun when that happens. That was like, yeah, like a great fun. Like a, a bat phone, like, like a, a little red phone. Red get phone. Chicago yeah. on the phone. We need them to solve a problem. But I think there's something about the kind of person that works in Chicago. <laughs> like, first of all, just the winters alone. I think we have better work-life balance. And that's a tricky topic for me because I'm not a person that has ever had work-life balance. And I don't really even understand that phrase. Like, it's being thrown around. So, you know, I'm coming out of school and I want work-life balance. It's like, well, then good luck having a fucking career. And this is such an important topic. I recall you recently had an interesting exchange with students at the Savannah College of Art and Design who reached out to invite you to be the keynote speaker for their motion graphics conference. But you kindly and candidly told them that being just out of school and seeking balance more than inspiration and passion, that that's a one-way ticket to a, quote, basic career. You said, and I quote, with a bit of paraphrasing, <laughs> sustainability is different. Mental health is different. This is their moment to dive into their work, to put in the miles, to be able to create a long lasting career. Those seeking balance now is bullshit. You know, like <laughs> the time when you get out of school is when you need to build your work build your career, build your skill set, build your network. So in a, in a way, what I hear you saying there is maybe there's a vibe or a mentality yeah. that is more common in Chicago that people make yeah. those in investments earlier Definitely. in their careers. And yeah. So that reminds me, I'm curious to hear a little bit about, because you're describing some skill sets and the way those yeah. teams are built and the way those different disciplines come together. Yeah. Does the studio sometimes get paid to think and to do purely strategy and purely that piece of the puzzle? Yeah, so we're kind of launching this new division, if you will. We've already started working, but we haven't like really been public about it. It's called Swarovski TBD. To be determined, this idea that like, bring us your problem earlier, we will strategize. We will do the, the steps before the making part as well. Because a lot of times, often what we see is there's a lot that's like, done before it gets here, but it really needs to be, for our work to be successful, that work has to be successful. So we're finding ourselves doing some of that work as kindly and compassionately as possible. And of course, we're not really getting paid for it. So it'd be like nice to yeah. be paid for it, you know? Well, okay. So I'm going to just guess that the TBD is almost a 
dare I say, a, a packaging or a productization called, hey, if we're doing strategy and we're doing thinking, 100%, let's, yeah. let's make it a thing and let's get paid for it. So it's, is it like a phase or a, a step in the process that is now being named and hopefully being yeah. respected accordingly? Yeah. And then we can like bill for it and hire substantial talent, which yeah. of course I have ready to go because I have 12 or 20 years in the business and right. all my best <laughs> friends do this, you know? So... Well, clearly, if you're going to go out and hire a strategist, you're certainly going to make sure that there's a revenue source mm-hmm. associated with that, right? It's no yep. longer it's no longer the freebie giveaway add-on thing. Yeah. So this is interesting about being like self-funded, and that to me is probably like taking a step back. The thing I'm most proud of that I didn't get money from anywhere. You know, it's really built on talent and trust. Everything here, like everything's a hustle. It's not not being built on the back of a, you know, a mountain that was already there. I mean, I will say this, if it's an encouragement, you know, based on my experience of working with all sorts of studios, your story is common to almost everyone that it's all bootstrapped. It's all hustle. It's all tenacious, relentless commitment to figure it out. And that means you have that crazy work-life balance for certain years. But you also wake up one day, as I say on this podcast, and say, damn, I think I built something. Like, this is a little a little mini empire of whatever this is, and it's kind of magical. Something I find super fascinating and inspiring is that you write a manifesto to yourself at the beginning of every year. You share with one of our producers here on the podcast that one you wrote right before Captain America when you were saying the studio was still not much and I was still very unjaded. I'd like to read a bit of it here for our listeners. And by the way, thank you sincerely for sharing this with us. You write. So looking back at the last two years, I realize how both fragile and stable the company is. The fragility lies within the unknown. How much work will we have at any given time? What will the scale of those jobs be and how profitable will they be? The stability of the company comes from the expertise of core staff, our ability to scale and focus our workforce as needed and our strong workflow slash infrastructure. This coming year, I also have to reevaluate and reposition my role within the company. In the past, I was responsible for creating a majority of the actual work as well as running the business, seeking out representation, managing long-term client relationships, handling all presentations and creative directing all the jobs running through the studio. This coming here, I need to be directing my energies towards new business development, maintaining the financial health of the company, branding Sarovsky within the industry, functioning as a live action director whenever opportunities arise, and creative directing a majority of the work that comes through the studio. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. There was a time when you know, like the receptionist or somebody would answer the phone and say, Sarovsky, and I'd be like, yeah. (laughs) And now it's a whole other thing. And the crazy thing is the phone just rings. People call us for work. Like, I mean, of course, you know, sales are a part of what we do and relationship managing, but like the PR machine worked and the putting good work out for over 10 years worked. It really, I, I was super naive about, how work came in. I think that's the thing that most people, when they ask me about like, 
hey, how can I start a business? And I was like, well, you can, yeah, anybody can start a business if there's work. How do you plan on getting work? <laughs> like there's no business without the work, you know, like. I love how short and crisp that response is, by the way. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's just sure. the truth. And, you know, I was a designer. I mean, that's why most studios are probably owned by executive producers because they know how to get work. You know, they know how to get out there and hustle. And there is definitely an aspect of me that's a producer because I understand that balance or have come to understand that balance. I'm curious to unpack that a bit when you talk about that balance, the balance between what and what? Money and time and creative. So in other words, I'm hearing you say that you became a good producer by what necessity being the mother of invention? Well, by, you know, being the person that finances all this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning you, you had to figure out how to run things uh, and, yeah. and stay in business and be profitable or else profitable. you weren't going to be in business. Yeah. And not just be profitable, but like have a nice nest there for, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't think people realize like how in our industry and probably other industries, but certainly our industry, we like support the financial burden of a lot of what's being done out there payment terms and like the bigger the company the shittier the payment terms the more money that they make on the stock market the more value they have the the more we're carrying the burden of the finances and we don't make our freelancers or staff wait an exorbitant amount of time i think you know a couple of years back we shifted our payment terms for our freelancers from 30 to 45 days and people were like oh wow that's like real shitty and i'm like I'm carrying 90 days. If you're going to be freelance and charge those rates, you have to bear some of the burden because I'm still out 45 days on a lot of that stuff. Like I'm still carrying yeah. it, you know, and I'm paying my people and all the other bills. So I don't think people really understand that to a, a, a certain extent we're loaning giant corporations money. That's right. Right. They are asking you to be the bank and then they don't want to pay interest. And you got to hunt that money down all the time. And they won't mm -hmm. pay interest. What do you mean don't want to? They don't pay interest. I get the sense that you're always ready and willing to advocate for not just your contemporaries, meaning other owners, but even for our industry. It seems like you have some battle scars and you're like, hey, someone's got to stick up for us. Yeah. I mean, back in the day, I used to like think that like, AICP was like a real thing, a real organization that was in support of people other than this kind of like party once a year that people get drunk at and say hi to like old friends. And um, an award show, that means like absolutely nothing. But here's the thing, like there, we have no organization that looks out for us. Right. <laughs> you know, and as a result, What's happened is all this free pitching, all of this. There's so many things that are just like, because it was that way is how it is. Right. And our clients don't know any better. They And why wouldn't they pitch three or four or five companies? There's no accountability. And then these three or four or five six companies are going to do the pitch because they want the work. So it's just kind of one of those things like there is no standard. And the only real way that there will be standards created is if we collectively start sticking up for ourselves. Well, I appreciate you being a voice and adding your voice to a podcast, right? Speaking publicly yeah. about these things, because I often feel like the opportunity that you have, that I have, 
especially the other owners in this community, is to give, tell me if you agree with this, can we just give the younger generation permission to not be desperate and to just settle with the status quo? Like, let's give them permission to stick up for themselves the way that we wish we had been able we did. to. Yeah, like, we made a right? lot of mistakes. We perpetuated it. We just right? like, totally. <laughs> and now like, we're in a position where we we can pass on a pitch because like, why are we going to pitch? We have three single bids. Like, go take your pitch somewhere else. Like, call us when you're ready to work with us and be a real partner. I think that's the difference between partner and vendor and relationship and non-relationship. The funniest ones are like, you know, we got this freebie, but it's really cool. It's cool for your reel. It's like, I fucking work on Marvel. I don't need shit that's cool for my reel. And they pay me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and when I need more, they pay me more because they're reasonable people that understand the ask and what it takes to get it there. And so in those situations, it's like, no, you should be leaning on a vendor that or a partner that you use all the time. You should call mm-hmm. those people because those are the people I help out are the people that I use all that use us all the time. And it's just, so I'm, I need a thing. I got no, you know what I mean? And it's like, I gotcha. You know what I mean? But that comes out of a relationship. That's not how you build a relationship. So I am curious to ask you, would you agree with me? Now, granted, I'm an eternal optimist, so okay, forgive me. <laughs> but would you agree that the tide is slowly lifting all boats. Like, I feel like we're, the war is taking a long time to win about a lot of these standards and practices and things, but I don't feel like it's, that it's consistently getting worse everywhere. I feel like it's getting a little better in different areas as time goes by. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. I think it's getting better in a lot of ways. And I think it's because there's a movement of transparency across the board in all, maybe not our generation, because I'm still very guarded about information, but the generation below us and below them and like to the little kiddos, they're very open. They are non-judgmental and they are very open. And like, you got to be careful what you pay people because they're all going to talk about what they make. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like they are just so, 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 so open. I can't imagine like, you know, the owners of Imaginary Forces and Psyop and Digital Kitchen and like Casper, like all those, com- you know, brand new school, all getting together and like having a conversation back in the early 2000s when it was going, it was fucking cutthroat. Like right? the, decks, the decks we made, the money spent on pitches, like forget about it. Okay. So I appreciate you agreeing with me that there was sort of like there was a golden age that did, wasn't always, not, not all that glitters is gold, I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And I will agree with you that, like, I'm amazed when I look at this community that I'm a part of, that there's hundreds and hundreds of owners. First of all, it's amazing that there's hundreds, but it's amazing Crazy. how much did, that they they show up and they will share and help and support each other and you know, these dinners that I do, same thing. I mean, it gets yeah. real and raw and honest. And sometimes there's tears and all that. Yeah. And it's like, it's kind of a beautiful thing. It is. Well, I think there's something just about entrepreneurs in general. Like there's some kind of, I don't know, like. Captain Secret handshake. Slash, yeah. Or just like <laughs> pirate magnetism. Like we're all out there with parrots on our shoulders and patches on our eyes with a hook. <laughs> like ready to go into the storm. You know what I mean? Just there's like a bit of that spirit of like, okay, well, maybe it'll burn down, but maybe it won't. 
when you meet another pirate, do you have that moment when you sort of recognize, oh, you're a pirate pirate too. And there's that, that instant camaraderie of like, oh, so you know what it's like, fill in the blank. Yeah. There's a hundred percent that there's just like a ton (laughs) that's unspoken. Like you could just do like a 30 minute eye roll with them. (laughs) Like there's just stuff that you and I know that like nobody else in this, in my studio or in your studio or the collective of motion design would understand. Like they don't know what it is to have a payroll or to put 50 fucking thousand dollars into a pitch and have it go to like the guy that was gonna get it anyway because they had a relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't know what that is. And that $50,000 is real money. It's not from the bank of something something that is a write-off. That's not a write-off. It's just you've spent $50,000 and you have no car. That's right. <laughs> no new car. And- Oh, but wait, you you left out one thing just to add insult to injury here. You built the car and you polished the car and you slaved over the car yeah. and then you you presented it to someone and they said thank you and didn't pay you for it. For it, yeah. Yeah, it's insane. It's, it's insane. really painful. It's yeah. really painful. I'm going to have I'm going to have a little more PTSD here if we keep Well, going I mean like <laughs> it, but it's it's one of those things and that's a lesson and you can kind of learn that lesson over and over and over again. Or you can be like, okay, what can I do differently the next time? And usually you have to learn that lesson a few times. It's not, because you do, we are these optimists. You have to be, if you're pitching all the time, like, I'm definitely going to get this one. And then it becomes like numbers. Like, then you start thinking about it as numbers. Like, okay, well, I'm not going to spend more than, you know, 7% of the budget on a pitch. So whatever that is, that's our limit. And like, do we really want it? Is it going to mess up jobs going on in-house? Is this even... Is this an existing relationship that we, you know, like all that stuff starts to get factored in, but you start to create guardrails for yourself to be able to make those informed decisions. Well, it's like, I'm hearing you say I'm an optimist, but with guardrails or boundaries. Yeah, for sure. Right? From years of getting schooled or taking some knocks. Well, so like people are going to ask everything of you. Your employees are going to ask more of you. Your clients are going to ask more of you. Your family, like everybody's going to be asking and taking and feeling entitled to. The key to all of that for me is to know where I stand, what's appropriate for me. And that person can either be okay with that or not. And then it's not like you are or are not worth that. It's just like, this is what, this is what it is here. And that doesn't mean I'm not open to changing my mind or anything like that, but you have to create boundaries and like, kind of rules. And then you kind of know where you stand and how far you're willing to go. Cause that line can't move really all that much. Man, this is the wisdom I wish I could have heard from you 10 or 15 years ago. Me because, too. <laughs> Cause that's right? wisdom that's hard. I, that's This is also like wisdom that's like about personal relationships. Like this lesson cost me really important relationships. I think of, of, past employees, things like that, where it's like, they were really important to the growth of the business, to some of the work that was created, but like boundaries started to be crossed and and I just wasn't very good at setting them. And then when I tried to create boundaries, it was just too fucking far gone. And it's like, what do you do then? Like you're, it just kind of sucks. <laughs> so. I can so relate, right? As that journey of the owner and something you said a minute ago, I called it the squeeze. I had a name for it, okay, oh. which is, so imagine all of your clients on this side, mm-hmm. and then they're like, 
Aaron, we need all these things from you and from your people and from your company and blah, 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 blah. And then you have all these people on this side, which are your employees and maybe your vendors and partners and freelancers and whatever. And they're all incredibly like, hey, I need more time from you. I need more help from you. I need more money and more salary and more benefits and more. But every year that would go by, it just grows and grows and grows. And you are like in the middle, yeah. just getting clobbered. Am I describing it without hopefully freaking you out too no, much? No, that's 100% what it is. It's so funny because like, I think there's this idea that when you own a company, there's freedom. <laughs> and really, you're just caught now between the two things. That's like, it's weird, right? Because there's freedom in that you built this prison brick by brick that you now find yourself in. And it's a beautiful <laughs> prison. It's stunning. But it, yeah, but there there maybe isn't as much freedom as as a casual observer might think when you say the word freedom. Yeah, like you're accountable to everybody. And I do not hide behind my team. I'm the one that will take the punch. You know, I'll go and I'll be like, okay, I hear things aren't going so well on this. What can I do to help? And I think that my team really appreciates that. And I think my client really appreciates that. But you're the one getting hit. And if you're not the one doing that and you're the owner or the figurehead or something like that, then there's that's cancerous, I think. You got to go to bat for your team and you got to be visible for your clients to say whatever they need to say, the good and the bad, you know? Well, you said something earlier. It, it was speaking to like what you're excited about in the future and maybe where you're going. Just becoming like a real legacy company that's known for this is stable, is doing the work that we do at a level with really amazing clients and collaborators. We do a really good job of focusing on Really great entertainment work with our entertainment partners like James and Marvel and, and the brothers. And Nick Stoller's another amazing collaborator. He's fucking him and Francesca, his wife, are amazing. And then on the commercial side, we've done a great job of focusing on retail. I know that sounds crazy, but like I think most people poo-poo retail. And I think a lot of agencies focused on bringing that stuff in-house and building in-house departments. But... That's going to shift. Whatever's going on in the agency side, I'm not going to get my crystal ball out, but I feel the tide moving back the other direction. Yeah, I'm almost hearing you describe a certain tenacity that results in a perseverance. Like we're, yeah. we're continuing to figure it out, even at the scale that you're at. And yeah, I have, I have huge admiration for what you're accomplishing there. I can see that you're still building a, a legacy that's, that's really exciting. Well, I think that's the word, like, I mean, we could talk more about agencies too, because I'm actually really kind of curious about your thoughts on that, mm. especially as you are able to look at the whole landscape. Mm -hmm. But I think you kind of put your your finger on it. Like, I want to build a legacy like Saul Bass and Ali Bass. Like, I want to build that kind of depth of work and longevity. Mm. So from like a quality longevity standpoint and visibility standpoint. I definitely want that. And I want to build, this is like super aspirational and people could like roll their their eyes way the fuck back into their head with who the fuck does she think she is. But I, Ray and Charles Eames, I, I think they are another huge inspiration for me. They got into other stuff. Again, makers, they are, to me are the true definition of like what a maker is. Why not, right? Because here comes the future. We're going to go create it. Yeah. Let's make something badass. So what questions would you like to ask me? Turnabout is fair play here. 
Well, yeah. I mean, like, what are you seeing? Like, where are you seeing most people's work come from? And how are their relationships with ad agencies kind of evolving and changing? Well, the simple answer is they are lessening. Like the concentration is totally shifting because I've had quite a few interviews and a consistent shift has been what some people, I've even heard numbers now of 80-20, where yet we used to do 80% agency work, you know, 20%, we'll call it direct to brand, which includes entertainment because entertainment basically is working for the brand. And now it's this. Like everyone's like, yep, we're doing 80% now for the brands. And that's given rise to what I would call being more agency, having more strategy, potentially as an actual offering, right? Viewing those relationships more like accounts, even though it's not an AOR type of Mm -hmm. uh, relationship. I think it's honestly like the, it's the democratization of our industry where even people at brands like they understand what editorial is. They know what a DSLR is. And there's this whole mystique that certain entities used to play off of, like agencies where, oh, we're the, we're the really smart, creative people. You guys don't know how to do that. Let us handle that has been obliterated. And big brands are very comfortable and happy to work directly with a studio which in the past would have only been to an agency and probably a big agency. Now, are you counting like agencies within brands when you say direct to brand? Yes, I am. Yeah. So like the in-house agencies where I don't mean to uh, belittle them, but the in-house agencies are not, they are not like the external agencies. No, they're not sophisticated. They're just, they're just not. And what's nice though, is the internal agencies will often look to a studio or a production company on the outside and be like, oh, we get to hang with the cool kids. We get to work with that director and they get a lot of inspiration and juice from, Mm -hmm. we get to work with the real pros, the experts, the people that are going to handle the big gnarly problem while we're over here doing the versioning and the day in, day out, Mm -hmm. right? Filling the beast that we have to feed called the channel or the website or the whatever. Yeah. What I love working about with um, direct to brand is they don't really look at you as vendors. They look at you as partners. So that dynamic is shifted. They're also not pitching new business. And because they're not pitching new business, they have a different mentality across the board. So they want to do their work really well. They're not looking for the next hot thing that's going to come in the door that they can jump to, right? We're not being asked to help on those new business pitches because they don't need that. (laughs) So that's great, right? So they have likely decided to work in-house for a lifestyle adjustment. Mm-hmm. And that is imparted on you as a vendor because they don't want to hear yeah. from you at nine o'clock at night. They want to hear from you at six at the end of the day and be done because they can be. I've got another good one for you. People or companies will tend to buy the way they sell. And so if you think about ad agencies, the vast, vast majority of them still charge by the hour. Yep. It's a giant AOR, but you 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 look under that proposal. Could, yeah. It's all hourly billable crap, which is mm-hmm. just a disaster. It's just the worst way to work in the world. 
So when you are selling to an agency, they're going to buy from you the way they tend to sell. So they tend to think in units and hours and time and so forth. A brand, those people, they may not even, like there's no connection. To them, they have a thing probably called an annual budget and we have a problem to solve and we're going to throw a pile of money at it and try and create the biggest result possible. And that's where I see, you know, studios can shine. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Way more fun. It is fun. You know, it's interesting. I, I wonder, you know, if people listening are thinking about, they just sent, seem to have those, that one agency or those two agencies that it's like always Friday at four when you hear from them. Mm. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's oh, yeah. just a couple. It's always Friday at four. If it's like Friday at three, it's like, why are you calling me so early? You know, like what's going on, right? And it's because whatever is going on internally has to do with creating work for the weekend so that they have to be accessible and available over the weekend for those hours. Like that is, it's a hundred percent what it is. Like it wouldn't happen so regularly because it's like, it's, it's created a culture of that even. It's gone from like, the system is in place for a reason. And I, I know I'm getting like, am I getting a little deep state and like conspiracy? But it's, it's <laughs> I've heard about this. Like, it's true. I'm telling you. Well, I, first of all, I've experienced several of those, yes, Friday at four o'clock calls. And can you work all weekend and we need infinite revisions? And I said, yeah. well, do you have infinite budget? And the answer okay. was, of course, never. No, no. In fact, never, this yes. is a free one, you know. And it's but yes, like, okay. think about it. The people in those situations are incentivized to work as long as possible, all night all hours, because every hour is billable. So there's not an, there's not some account manager saying, "Stop racking up this big bill." Mm-mm. They're saying they're saying, "Oh well, you know, you racked up a big bill. You worked all weekend." Yeah, right. It's a uh, it's good for them actually. Yeah, not good for us, but it's good for them. But we do have weekend rates, and I think like what we have tried to do is. You know, those clients are good clients, though. And they those clients, like, if we're working with them, it's because they pay really well. It's really good work. And it's it's doing a lot of what you need to do for a studio. I think also people don't realize. It's interesting. We just got a question on Ask Between the Keyframes that was kind of controversial. It was the most recent one that just got posted about it quoted uh, the owner of the mill saying... People are going to bust their ass. And if they don't like it, they can leave <laughs> kind of thing. Like, we mm-hmm. offer them good money you know, great work to work on. And like, what do you want me to say? This is commercial, baby, you know, kind of. <laughs> and I I don't think it's like an elegant way of saying it. And I certainly don't think that's like good for the culture of his company. But there's an aspect of what he's saying that's true. Like we cannot survive just saying yes to 72 and sunny, not the agency, but like the perfect paradigm for a job. The perfect paradigm for a job does not exist. People are not offering all of the money with all of the time, with all of the everything, with all the creative, right? No, it's just, that's just not what it is. It's there's, there's, so as you run a studio, you have to be very thoughtful about like, is this person always being asked to work the weekend? And are you compensating them for when they work the weekend? And, you know, how could you be a more thoughtful owner or manager to your people? Maybe it's like, okay, let's get a freelancer on Friday and they take the weekend and then da 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 they're back on it on Monday. We do things like that. Or just have somebody book for the evening just in case the revision comes in. Like, we can do that if we know in advance. So we try and have, like, these open dialogues with our agency partners and our 
and our team and our freelancers, like, hey, this is the deal. This is what we're going to do and try and plan for it. But then every once in a while, it's just like, yeah, this one sucks and we're at the end of the line. So let's get it done and then take a couple of days off. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. it's like, what do you want to say? It's hard. Yeah. I remember my partner and I, we used to say, hey, we're taking a job for the real, the reward, and hopefully the relationship. Yeah. But sometimes the, if the reward was right, we were like, hey, take the money and run. Like, yeah. we're going to do this one for the money. But we would be open with everyone. Like, we're taking yeah. this one for the for the money and hopefully for one of the other R's. But, you know, yeah. you, you, you do your best to try and get all three in an ideal you situation. You do. I mean, it, but it's, how often does that happen? I mean, really? You got to, you got to you know, fight hard and be tenacious and be picky and be willing to say no and all these things that you've experienced. Mm -hmm. Well, and the more you say no, the more people learn to come to you with the good stuff. That's what I've learned. Like, as soon as you tell somebody no, it's like, they like want you more. It's amazing. And it's like, well, like we're back, we're back. Can we afford you now? And are we a (laughs) good fit this time? It's true. It's really, really true. And I, that is like, as a business owner, was the scariest thing to turn down work that was pretty good paying or there was something that was just like, uh, that's a little too far, but but close, you know, but like, uh, still no. But now we're very quick to turn down work. Well, I was sitting here looking at your, um, you know, the homepage of your your site and seeing this bringing kinship and excellence to the intersection of art, design, technology, and film production and uh, and also just this resourceful smart focused right get yeah. further faster than anyone else but the big word there is makers makers um, and gosh i guess i'm just going to say i really celebrate all that you've accomplished and i also applaud that still growing fire in the belly right you talk about mm-hmm. the legacy of a Saul bass or the eames and those kinds of things and i i i'm going to be cheering you on and so will the industry to see what the sarovsky legacy how it continues to grow and evolve. So congrats. Thank you. That's very sweet. I really appreciate that. Congrats to all of my guests for making the list. The Fabulist is a labor of love put in motion by me, produced by a team of creatives and enjoyed by you. Our host, well, that's me, Joel Pilger. Sound designer is Eric Singer and the audio alchemists at Coop Studios. Senior producer, Jocelyn Arem at Arbo Radico. Special thanks to my partner and good friend, Tim Thompson at RevThink for all of his wisdom. If you appreciate these contributions, be a good human. Give these people a shout out. Also, please like and subscribe and tell more creatives in the world about The Fabulists so we can keep telling more of these stories. Until next time, keep on living a better story. I want to tell you about a place to connect that you might not know about. It's our online community called Rev Community. It's a great place to get to know other creative business owners like yourself, to share some thought leadership and read other encouragement, to be challenged in this new marketplace, new technology, ideas, economic trends. And it's a place to research. Check out many of the resources we have online, our videos, and of course, this podcast. Join us today at revthink.com slash community. If you're a creative studio owner, feel free to join us today at revthink.com slash community. I look forward to seeing you there.